I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. When I was in South Carolina in February for the Democratic primary, I sat down with Jamie Harrison. He's the former chairman of the state's Democratic Party, the first African-American to hold the post, and now he's vying to become the Palmetto State's second black-sitting U.S. senator by running against incumbent Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. Harrison has an incredible bio, one that took him from being so poor he ate cereal with water to being a graduate of Yale and Georgetown Law School. His race to defeat Graham has gone from improbable to possible. Since we talked, Harrison's first quarter fundraising broke state records, and he's within striking distance of overtaking the man folks once revered. Here's what he said happened at a focus group in Charleston. And one woman said to, said to the, the moderator, she said, and I'm bothered by the fact that Lindsey Graham did not stand up for his friend John McCain. And she said, if he won't stand up for his best friend, then what will it do for me? Here, Harrison explained how that sentiment could be his route to victory over Lindsey Graham right now. Jamie Harrison, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. So I want to get into to who you are. Yeah. And when you look at your biography, it's gripping and it's gripping in its deprivation and in its success. And I'm going to start with the, depri- the, the tough early years. And there is one line in your bio that just grabbed me. And I read it several times, a simple line. And it was um, where you said, you remember eating cereal with water because you couldn't afford milk. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, when I tell folks that we, it was difficult and hard, it was. Um, uh, that particular situation, I, there are a number of occasions where, you know, we go to the fridge Go get some milk. I love fruity pebbles. I also <laughs> and 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 my grandma would uh, you know sometimes she wouldn't be at home because she's working and there wouldn't be milk and so you have to put water in it. Um, uh, you know there were times, Jonathan, when you know my grandfather who worked construction would get up in the morning and needed to go to work and he'd go to his car and his truck and the gas tanks on empty and. Um, and so, you know, I'm helping him trying to, I'm looking through couch cushions, um, looking for a quarter nickel dime. So he'd just get enough, you know, at that time, gallon gas was less than a dollar, um, just enough to, to, uh, get to work and back. And, and because he needed to go to work, we, we had to have him go to work. It wasn't like he was going to, he was on salary. He was going to, I mean, uh, we were, we were, um, every nickel counted mm-hmm. in our household. And so. You you lived with your grandparents because your your mom mm-hmm. had you when she was sixteen. Yeah, she she had me when she was sixteen years old, and we, my mom and I, both lived with my grandparents for a while. And then my mom decided, um, you know, she got a job, then got a house, and moved out. And so then I stayed with her for a while, and then uh, she got laid off at her job and couldn't find anything here in South Carolina. So she decided to go to Atlanta, and. Um, when she decided to go to Atlanta, the, the, the agreement was that she would go find a job, kind of get situated. I would stay here with my grandparents until that happened. But, uh, you know, time passed. My mom did eventually get situated, but I didn't want to leave my grandparents. And it's because my grandparents and I had some, uh, sort of a symbiotic relationship, right? Uh, it got to the point where I felt obligated, like I took care of them and they took care of me. 
Um, they didn't have a whole lot of education. My grandmother had an eighth grade education because she dropped out of school to pick cotton and then worked in the textile industry and she did domestic work. And then my grandfather had a fourth grade education. He stopped school. He worked at a dairy and then he did construction most of his life up until he got diabetes. But because they didn't have a whole lot of education and, you know, I was a kid who was, yeah, I did well in school, even early on. Uh, I was reading above my reading level, uh, you know, early, early on. And so um, bills would come into the house and it was my job to read them mm-hmm. and to tell my grandparents what it was. Now, the context for what I was reading, I had no idea what clue it was, but I, that's what I read. Um, and so but at the same time, they took care of me. They made sure I had my clothes, my food and and took me to all the little things that I wanted to do. And so we had a very, very close bond. And in some ways, my grandparents and I were sort of a second set of parents, Mm -hmm. in in essence. Um, And uh, uh, but two remarkable people. One really horrible thing that happened was that their house was sold out from under or actually taken away from them. Talk about what happened in that. So, you know, when I was, this is when I was in middle school, my grand, so the house that I was born in, my grandparents decided to sell. And uh, my grandma was just had her heart set on on a mobile home. And this is when, you know, mobile homes were, they, they were coming out and they're fancy and they had like the, the jacuzzi tub and all those other stuff, even though we now know as, as an investment, it's not something that you really want to invest in because it doesn't build any equity or anything. So, but nonetheless, they went and they, they decided to get a mobile home. So they took the, the money that they got from the house. Uh, they went to this mobile home manufacturing place and they bought one. Uh, but they had to make mortgage payments just like, you know, you would do on a house. And so my, um, the, the guy who was there at the, at the place, he basically told my grandparents, okay, every month you bring your, your payment to me and I will send it in to the, the bank. Um, and so they decided to do that. And so what he would say is bring your money order. Cause my grandfather always would go to the post office of and get course. a money order and, uh, he would get his paycheck get it cash, go to the post office, get a money order. My grandma would take the money order to the, uh, the guy. And he said, well, I'll fill it out for you so I can put all the information on it. Right. And they did it for months. And then they started getting letters that said, uh, you know, Mr. Miss Harrison, we haven't received your payments. Blah, blah, blah. And they took the, my grandma and I would take the letter to the guy and said, I'll call them uh, right now and find out what's going on. There's something wrong with their computer systems or whatever went on for a few more months. Then finally, it was a knock on the door. It was the sheriff, and, and he said, Mr. and Mrs. Harrison, sorry to tell you, but uh, the bank has foreclosed on your home, and you're going to have you have the, until this time to move out. And they were devastated. You know, my grandfather never really cried much. Yeah, I never saw it. He's one of those, you know, those old Southern men that mm-hmm. just, you know, tough, um, grizzled, but just he never cried. And, and but that was one of the first times I saw my grandfather cry um, because he w- he always believed in be- being diligent with his bills because his his father always told him to do that. Willie, you always pay your bills. And um, so we were we were stuck on sleeping on you know, couches and spare beds of friends and uh, you know aunts, cousins for a few months until my um, my grandma 
And, you know, as luck would have it, my grandfather also lost his job. The, the guy who ran the construction company he ran for got ill. And so they had to lay off all the folks on, on the company. So my grandfather also lost his job right around the same time. And so uh, finally, we found this little place, 644 Green Street in Orangeburg. Uh, it was in a, not a duplex, I guess it was a triplex or, or something like that. And we had this one little two-bedroom on, on the end. And uh, in my launch video, there's a picture of, of me walking in front of it. I mean, it was didn't have any air conditioning. Um, it was a little small, cramped thing. and um, But that's where we lived for a, a, a number of years. So. And you say in that launch video yeah. that, and you're calling him your grandfather now, but you said you called your grandfather Mr. Bookie. Mr. Bookie. Mr. Bookie. And you say in your launch video that you made a promise to yourself when, when they lost their house that you were going to buy them a house. Yes. And uh, you bought them a house in 2004. 2004. And Mr. Bookie died three months later. So we bought, uh, I bought the house August 2004. Because I was down here. I took a leave of absence from Jim Clyburn's office to come and help Inez Tenenbaum run for the U.S. Senate. And what was great was I got an opportunity to spend so much time with my grandparents because I was here uh, on the ground in South Carolina. And so I would go and see my grandfather. And, and, and there were times, Jonathan, he would say, because at this point he, he was a diabetic. He had had amputations, so he was no longer really walking in a wheelchair. And he would sit out on the porch every day and just to, you know, watch cars go by and all and sit there. And he would he kept saying to me, he said, Jamie, you know, I just can't sit out on the porch. These, these boys are shooting up all the time, uh, you know, meaning this young guys in the neighborhood just shooting and carrying on. And so I, that's when I told myself, you know, this is time to get them someplace because I didn't want him to be out there in some stray bullet to hit him while he was sitting on the porch. And so um, I went to the real estate company, found a, a house um, uh, and put down the down payment and, and we were able to get it. But I didn't tell them about it at all. Uh, it was in what a quote, quote unquote nice side of town. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, but we um, so the first time they saw it was the first time I had already uh, pretty much was close to closing on the house. And it told him, uh, put him in the car, him and my grandma, and drove him to the house and said, you know, Mr. Bookie, I want to show you something. And, and I was like, this is, this is your house. And uh, he thought I was playing with him. Um, but uh, so they enjoyed that house for a few months. Um, and then my grandfather, is, we bought it in August, and that November he passed away. So... How does, as you called yourself on, on, I think it was either on AM Joy or Rachel Maddow, how does a, a roundhead, little <laughs> roundhead boy from Orangeburg, <laughs> South Carolina, uh -huh. given the, the life story you have just told, how does that person get to Yale yeah. undergrad and then Georgetown Law School? Uh, uh as my grandma said, blessed and highly favored. Um, you know, I, I, um, I knew very early on that, uh, I loved to read. I, I loved education. I loved the history. And so I always tried to do well in school And my grandparents and my mom always invested in me to do that and fostered that love. Um, and so, 
You know, originally I had no idea about Yale or any of those. I didn't know what an Ivy League was. Who, who told you about well, Yale? How did well, you find out about this, it? This is the interesting thing. You know, I did well on the PSAT. And as you know, when you take the PSAT, all kids take it, they send your scores to the college board. And the college board then sends scores to all of the universities that subscribe to them. And so then you start getting stuff in the mail. The very first thing that I got in the mail was a catalog from Boston University. So for almost all of my junior year, because I flipped through the catalog and here's these these young students and there's all these beautiful colored leaves because, you know, we don't really have seasons here in South Carolina, particularly not in Orangeburg. And they're sitting next to the river and all this. And I was like, that's it. That's I want to go there. I want to go to college at Boston University. So almost for a year, that's the only school I talked about because they were the very mm -hmm. first to send me something. And then I got a little more sophisticated because that summer I went to New Orleans. Um, I got the scholarship to go to Xavier University for a super scholar Excel uh, trip. And then while I was there, I was talking to all these other students who were talking about all these other schools. And then I said, well, maybe I should take a look at some of these other schools that they're talking about. Early in the senior year, I get this card from Yale University and a view book. And I'm like, oh, my God, because even though I didn't know about Ivy League, you, you, anybody who's walking <laughs> this country knows about Harvard and Yale, right? right. Two names that are just, uh, just a part of the culture. And so I got this magazine from Yale, and I was like, oh, my God. And I took it to school the next day. It's like, look what I got from, uh, from Yale University. And then they invited me to come to Columbia to see uh, the Yale Russian course perform. Uh, and then uh, come to Columbia, come to South, South Carolina, Carolina yes, to, to see the Yale Russian course perform. And so I went to my grandfather and I said, Mr. Bookie, can I borrow your car? Now, my grandfather had a 1978 Ford LTD. <laughs> now, this was back in 1994, <laughs> That's right? That's so fabulous. So a ninth, it was a boat, right? <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. Yes, it was a boat. That's what I learned how to parallel park. So I'm the best parallel oh, parker the best parallel in the, parker in the world. Ever. Because if you can parallel a 1978 <laughs> Ford LTD, you're a damn good driver. <laughs> so anyway... My grandfather said, boy, you know, my car m might not be able to make it all the way to Columbia. <laughs> because, Jonathan, I'm telling you, this car, the trunk didn't work because the, the lock was busted on it. So we had this little rubber thing to keep the trunk. <laughs> of course. And, and so anytime it hit a speed bump, the trunk would go up and down, go boom, boom. <laughs> so I would never want my grandfather to come pick me up from, from school. Right. Like, I, I would tell him. You y'all go down to the, the the edge and I'll walk. <laughs> I'll walk down. <laughs> so you pick me up. Nonetheless, <laughs> so he allowed me to borrow his car. I drove here with a few friends and I sat there. I listened to the chorus and they did uh, the mission spiel. And I said to my friend, I said, "That's where I want to go." So I came back to school the next day. I said, "I want to apply." And my counselors, one of my counselors said, well, Jamie, I don't want you to get your hopes up because I don't think, you know, so few kids get in and la, la, la. I said, that's where I want to go. And she said, well, why don't you look at this school and that school? I said, no, this is where I want to go. So I applied to some of the schools she wanted me to look at, but I knew I wanted to go to Yale. So I applied. And April 2nd, 1994, I go to my mailbox at that house. Uh, and you, you know, at that time, you didn't get email because there was no email. They're right. You, got, you guys got a thick envelope <laughs> or, or a little, little, thick little small one. And so I walked in and there's a stack of envelopes in there and I flipped through there and there's this one big white envelope with 
Y-A-L-E on the corner. And I ripped that sucker open and I read very quickly. And it, and it had a, a book and it says, yeah, you know, we're happy to say you were admitted to Yale. I even have, I still have the letter. It's right over at a other's, other headquarter office. And I started yelling and screaming, like, oh, I got in, I got in. And then my grandma comes running to the door. She said, boy, you're going to wake up the dad. <laughs> like, what are you screaming about? I said, I got in, I got in, I got in. And I'm jumping up in the middle of the street. And she said, oh, Jesus, he got in, he got in. <laughs> my grandma had no clue what I got <laughs> into. <laughs> but, you know, I, I did get in. and But, you know, I almost did not go, however. Because I was $2,500 short. They gave me a scholarship, but I was $2,500 short. And $2,500 for us, Jonathan, was like $250,000. Like, that was a lot of money. And so had it not been for this guy, this man in Orangeburg, his name is Earl Middleton. Uh, he participated in the Tuskegee Airmen. He was the first African-American to, to go to the State House from Orangeburg since Reconstruction. Uh, he was just a remarkable man. Uh, but he gave me a job that summer in order to make the $2,500 and to get a computer and all, uh, just such a remarkable man, but I almost did not go to Yale. Uh, and had it not been for him, I would not. So you go to Yale, yep. you go to Georgetown, you work for the legendary Congressman Jim yep. Clyburn. Um, you become the first African-American to chair the democratic party in South Carolina. Yeah. And now you are running. For the U.S. Senate. For the United States Senate against the incumbent Senator Lindsey Graham. Yes. Why are you doing this? <laughs> well, part of it, Jonathan, is I'm doing this to bring hope back to South Carolina. You know, I go around this as chair. I would go around the state to all the counties. And the stuff, the things that I would see is that there are young kids that are growing up just the way I did. But the difference between the way that I grew up and, and how they're growing up now is that there were opportunities for me, right? I was able to do some things uh, that, that opened, you know, sort of opened the world to me, but there's so many young kids that I meet and their family and their parents and their families who just don't have any hope, who don't think things are going to get any better, who actually think that their kids' lives are going to be worse than theirs. And for me, that's problematic. It's extremely problematic because I know that the American dream works. I know it because I'm a testament to that. My, my life is a testament to that. Um, and for folks not to have that type of hope, that there are opportunities for them and their kids, uh, just it, it's crushing to me um, because you see the potential. You see how smart they are. You see how creative they are. Um and, and, you know, I started thinking, I said, well, what's different? What's different between when I grew up to, to now? And part of the difference, I have to say, is not the, the people aren't any different. You know, landscape isn't very different. But the difference is in terms of the type of leadership that we have in the state. Right now, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham sort of epitomizes um, why people hate politics and why people don't trust the people who are supposed to represent them. Because here's a guy that many of us, had tremendous respect for um, because when, you know, John McCain was alive, we thought in the end of the day, he would do the right thing for either the state or the nation when the rubber met the road. But what we have now seen is that this guy's only interest is in Lindsey O. Graham. That's his only interest is being in, uh, uh, in the middle of things uh, to, to, to have power. 
that's what is relevant. That that's how he defines his relevance. Uh, whereas I see my relevance is how can I help somebody else? You know, my grandfather and my grandparents taught me to be my brother and my sister's keepers. Right. My grandma always said, she said, Jamie, even though we are the least of these, you have an obligation to the least of these. And I fundamentally believe that. Um, I want to make sure not only my boys, I have two boys, a five year old and 10 month old, not only that they get an opportunity to, to, to live up to their dreams, but I want to make sure every kid in the state gets that opportunity too. not just black kids, not just white kids, but all kids. Um, and it's sad to see it, to see a kid when they don't have that little flicker in their eye, right? The flame that you know that if you feed it, it'll become a roaring uh, uh, inferno, right? Because of the passion that they have and, and, the, and the dreams that they have to be better than, than what people believe they can be. I don't see that. I don't see that. And that, that it's like a dagger to the heart. Uh, and I believe that Sending somebody like me to Washington, D.C., who understands the hardships and the pains of growing up poor in, in the state, can go to Washington, D.C. and affect change and really make a difference in the lives of the people in the state. Now, one of the reasons why, and, and I've heard you say this in many interviews, one of the reasons why you think you actually have a good shot at defeating Senator Graham is because of a, quote unquote, new South. Yes. It's a sort of a message I've heard from others who have other African American candidates who have run for high office, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum exactly. in Florida, but both of them, despite their New South mantra, went down in defeat. Yeah. One, what is the New South as as you describe it? And two, what makes you think you can be the person to actually show that the New South exists yeah. and is can be victorious? Well, for, for me, the new South is, I believe, you know, out of the ashes of the old South, you know, this new South is going to emerge like a phoenix. Um, this South is, this new South is bold, is inclusive, and it's diverse. We're starting to see some demographic trends uh, taking place in the South. Uh, reverse migration is one of them. African-Americans whose families uh, generations before went to, you know, New York and D.C. and Chicago and Detroit are now coming back home. They're coming back to Atlanta and Charleston and Greenville and Charlotte. Uh, and as a result of that, it's starting to modify the demographics, uh, the political uh, demographics of the state. We're also seeing here in South Carolina, we are now, I think, the sixth fastest growing state in the country. Uh, we are seeing an influx of college-educated white voters into this into this area. Uh, the reason why South Carolina and North Carolina are different is because of that demographic difference. You know, North Carolina has registered African-American votes is 23%. Here in South Carolina, it's 28%. We have 28% registered African-American. I think we're only behind Mississippi, maybe, and in, in, in Georgia a little bit in terms of sheer number of African-Americans uh, or percentage of African-Americans in our electorate. But the demographic of white college educated is, has been far lower in South Carolina than it has been in, in places like North Carolina and Georgia. But we're seeing that increase. That is also impacting. Those people are moving to places like Charleston. It's part of the reason why we were able to win the first congressional district that Joe Cunningham is now in because of the demographic changes in Charleston County. I mean, more people are moving there every day. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Um, 
And I think uh, there's also an increase in terms of the Latino population. Uh, and South Carolina has one of the fastest growing Latino populations in the country as well. It's still relatively small, but it's growing at 200 plus percent a year. And so uh, those things uh, uh, coupled together are, are, are really changing the face of politics in the state. And we're seeing it in some of our elections. For the first time ever, you know, Greenville has been the heart of the Republican vote uh, here in South Carolina. For the first time in since I can remember, we now have a democratically controlled city council in the city of Greenville. Uh, we picked up a, a U.S. Uh, a U.S. House race with Joe Cunningham. We also picked up a state Senate race here just recently uh, for the first time in 30 years. So now the Democrats are only four seats down from parity. Um, and so, you know, things are going extremely, extremely well uh, in terms of changing the demographics. And for the first time, we have over a million people of color registered here in South Carolina. And there's still the potential of making that even better because there's still 400,000 unregistered black voters in the state. Um, this all sounds like sounds great yep. and happy. Some people listening might think that, oh, isn't he nice? All this happy talk. But there are some numbers that actually back up what you're saying. Yeah. I went back and looked. And if you have if you have some updates, yes, please let me know. But. Um, I think in the last quarter of 2019, you raised $3.5 million, Yes, which is a record yes. in the state. And you broke the previous record, which was set by Senator Graham yep. in the previous quarter. Well, and then Lindsey broke my record again oh. by releasing that he did $3.9 million. But listen, for a round-headed boy from Orangeburg to raise $3.5 million in three months, that is, uh, <laughs> as my, my grandma said, that's cooking with grease. And, <laughs> and I believe that we will do better than Lindsey Graham this quarter. I really do believe the momentum that we are gaining each and every quarter. But as people get to hear our message, I mean, Jonathan, I can show you, I'm going to show you some pictures of, and, and maybe I've shown them to you already, just of the crowds that we're starting to get. And these are in some of these Republican counties. We went to Lancaster County uh, recently. This is a county that went for Donald Trump, 61-35. And in this county, uh, we were expecting, we were going to a senior community. We were expecting 30 or 40 people. I walk in and there are 250 people in the room. And as soon as they notice me, and these are white seniors in South Carolina, they don't they don't traditionally vote for Democrats, mm -hmm. right? And I walk in the room, and they stand up, and they start clapping, and they start chanting, "Send Lindsey home, send Lindsey home." And a number of them come up to me afterwards, and they say, "You know, I don't know what has happened to Lindsey Graham." And this one woman said to me, she said, "I've voted for Lindsey more than I can remember, but I won't vote for him this election." And many of them are just bothered. They, you know, character matters here in the state. This is a values-based state. That's what motivates people, values. And character is a huge part of that. And Lindsay has just demonstrated to, to, to folks that here's a man who can put his hand on the Bible, take an oath, oath to God that he's going to do X, Y, and Z, and in the same breath, don't do it, right? This is a man that we had one focus group where there were white women down in Charleston. They were uh, defined college educated, either moderate uh, Republicans or independent. And one woman said to, said to the, the moderator, she said, and I'm bothered by the fact that Lindsey Graham did not stand up for his friend John McCain. 
And she said, if he won't stand up for his best friend, then what will he do for me? And the heads just nodded it. And he has a, he has a fundamental problem that he, he, you know, there's nothing worse than somebody that you used to trust. And then they, they renege on that trust. They, they, they step all over that trust. There's nothing like somebody's scorn. And there's a lot of people in the state, Democrats who supported Lindsay, independents who supported Lindsay, and even some moderate Republicans who feel betrayed by Lindsey Graham. Let me get you to react to uh, a, a quote from the Republican chairman Talk here um, in South Carolina, That's Drew McKissick. He, he's, <laughs> he, he said when the story came out about your 3.5 yeah. million he wrote, at the end of the day, Jamie Harrison is just a former D.C. lobbyist who supports impeaching President Trump. Well, this may appeal to Hollywood elites and the Democrat de- Democrat donors. It's not a winning strategy here in South Carolina. Yeah, well, first of all, we need to get him back into school to get that grammar lesson. It's not the, <laughs> it's Democratic donors, not Democrat donors. But but <laughs> that's why I tripped over. Yes, it. I always trip over that. Uh, but listen, it, Lindsey Graham just went to, to I think he was in Beverly Hills doing a big fundraiser out there with President Trump. So, it does, you know, don't come to me about when you look at where Lindsey Graham's money comes from, it's bundlers. Uh, Sheldon Adelson uh, just gave him a million dollars to a super PAC that supports Lindsey Graham. Uh, you know, these guys are in South Carolina, have been in control uh, for as long as I can remember, for most of my adult life. And as I talk to you about all of these issues, there are 250,000 people in the state who don't have health care right now. Uh, and they should if they lived in any other state, they would because of, of the lack of Medicaid expansion. A third of the state doesn't have broadband access. 14 counties where there are no OBGYNs, uh, 41 communities where the lead level in the water is higher than federal standards. I can go over and over all of these issues. All of that happened on Lindsey Graham's watch. And and it'd be one thing if he was here actually doing things to try to address that. But he's not. He's in Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada flying around with the president on Air Force One. They, you know, they're doing a fun. He's here in South Carolina today. But the only reason why he's here is because Donald Trump had to drag him down here because he's going to do a fundraiser for him. This guy needs to come back home and do the work that he was sent to Washington, D.C. to do. And so, uh, yeah, Drew can talk until he, he's uh, blue in the face. I, I don't care what he has to say. Bottom line is they're going to have to talk about the record that Lindsey Graham has, and it's not one to be proud of. Here's the other data point. You can correct me because um, there's a December 2019 Post and Courier poll where Lindsey Graham has 47 percent support. Jamie Harrison has 45 percent so just two points just two points. separating you is that the latest poll well there was another poll that i think an nbc Maris poll that came out that showed that the, the lead had grown uh for Lindsay. but at this point i'm not really focused on that and it's partly because there's such a big gap between name id so Lindsey graham has a 90 percent name id my name id right now is probably at about 15 percent and so that's where the raising the money is so important because I need the resources to get out into the community so that people understand who I am. But it, even in that poll that came out just recently, it showed that I was beating Lindsey Graham with independent voters in South Carolina, even despite the fact that my name ID is low. And that's 
That's the crucial part. So Lindsey, in his last election, ran against one of my good friends, uh, Senator Brad Huddle. Um, but Brad got into the race late and raised about a half million dollars. But Lindsey only won 54% of the vote. And that was in his last election. That was Lindsey Graham 1.0, right? That was the Lindsey Graham that had support from moderate Democrats, independents, strong support, and Republicans. Lindsey Graham 2.0 is very different. That Lindsey Graham won't get any Democratic support. That Lindsey, this new Lindsey Graham is underwater right now with Jamie Harrison in terms of independence. And once those folks get to know me even more, I think that that gap is going to grow. Now, that Lindsey Graham has grown his support on the right, but I believe that's soft. I believe that's soft because many of those folks called him Gramasty. They called him uh, he was a rhino. Uh, they didn't quite trust him. Many of them censured him a few years back. Now some of them are starting to look back at him. But in the end of the day, I believe that Jamie 1.0 is going to build a coalition like Lindsay 1.0 had. And that is what's going to carry me over uh, to victory. You don't think that those people who were calling Senator Graham Gramnesty that they're going to come your way. You're saying that they, they could just sit home, sit home stay and home. Vote. They'll vote for Donald Trump, but they don't trust Lindsey Graham. And we see that difference in the polling. You know, Donald Trump in the same poll that in the, uh, the Post and Courier poll, Donald Trump was at about 52%, I believe, in that poll, 53%. Approval. Approval. But Lindsey Graham was at 47 so that that tells you that there was somebody, that there were 53% of the people who said, I support Donald Trump. But there was a drop of 6% in terms of support for Lindsey Graham, right? So the question is why? And that is what we're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of energy on. Um, we believe that that's the soft spot. That's the Achilles heel. Those are the people who don't believe that this guy is a, a guy of strong character. I mean, you can say what you want to say about Donald Trump. He is what he is, right? Uh, he doesn't change. Um, he, he, uh, you can support what he believes in or you don't support him, but Lindsey Graham has changed and that is where his weakness comes in. You know, we're going to put together the best coalition of folks that we've ever have, uh, on the ground here in South Carolina, but we're going to message to all the folks in this state. We're going to talk about the hopes, the aspirations, and the fears of the people of South Carolina, and we're going to educate them about the record of Lindsey Graham. Uh, and, and that's my focus. I'm going to control what I can control, as my grandma always says. You, you, you control what you can control, and you leave the rest of God. And that's what I'm going to do. We believe that we can make the case that Lindsey Graham has been a failure to South Carolina. And it's time to upgrade. It's time to, to send him. Uh, I've been saying send him home, but we'll send him to Mar-a-Lago, too, because he <laughs> likes to spend a lot of time there. Uh, we'll give him a one-way ticket. and. <laughs> South Carolina has a, a rough reputation in politics. Rough and tumble. Here in the state, but also nationally. Like We all watch to see what kind of nonsense yes, is going to come yeah. out of the Palmetto State. You're a nice, decent man. Yep. I think people can hear that in this interview. Are you too nice and decent for the race you're in? I've heard that, uh, and I've heard that my entire life. But, you know, I, I tell people this, Jonathan. You don't grow up the way that I grew up and not be tough. Now, my grandma is just like me. Uh, she and my mom, same way. We are probably the most big hearted people you can find. But if you mess with us, when you get us upset, you don't want to see us. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to be you know, uh, the well-mannered 
grandson and son that my grandparents and my mom taught me to be. But at the same time, when we need to ratchet this up, we're going to ratchet it up because I feel so passionately about this. You know, for Lindsey Graham, the most important thing to him is being a United States senator. That's the most important. And, and, and the things not to do the work of a United States senator, but the, the getting in front of the TV cameras, you know, being able to fly on Air Force One and all that. That's not the most important thing to me. Most important thing to me are first my family uh, and then the people in the state. I want to make sure that all of the people in the state get an opportunity to be who they want to be, to, to love who they want to love, to, to praise who they want to praise. Right. And that's really important to me. And I feel like right now what is in the way of that is Lindsey Graham. And you don't want to be in the way uh, of, uh, for me, I am very, very focused. And people will tell me, and people have told me my entire life that I can't do certain things. They told me that I couldn't go to college. I went to Yale. They told me I couldn't go to law school. I went to Georgetown. They told me that I couldn't be successful on Capitol Hill. You know, I was one of the top staffers on the Hill when I left. And now they are telling me that I can't win this race for the United States Senate. And what I'm, my retort to them is, watch me. Jamie Harrison, former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party and candidate for the United States Senate here in South Carolina. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.